Our engagement with music is shaped by a variety of social, cultural, and political forces. Colliding with an increasing global economy, musical practices over the past century have emerged within a complex web of technological and legal issues, resulting in delicately negotiated relationships between artists, consumers, and music industries. Over the next three episodes, we will consider the impact of global economies on contemporary culture industries in India, examining copyright law, Bollywood dance economies, and ecologies of musical instrument production. Together, these interviews highlight the relationship between musical production and labor, social values of music and dance performances, and the material impact of global musical practices both within and beyond South Asia. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology, devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In this episode, we talk with Greg Booth regarding his article, Copyright Law and the Changing Economic Value of Popular Music in India. In his investigation of intellectual property rights within the context of Indian music and film industries, Greg traces the influence of new technologies, copyright laws, and globalization on the production, distribution, and reception of Indian popular music. One of the defining characteristics of the popular music industry in India is its close association with the film industry. And that's been a central fo- focus for your research. Can you give a brief explanation of the historical relationship between popular music in India and Hindi film songs? The way India worked out, especially after 1947 and independence, was that there was no popular music, really, certainly not being recorded and commercially produced, outside of the Hindi film song. So it's a quite unique situation globally where everything really is under the control and effect of the film industry. And there's almost no popular music industry outside of that. And that's one of the things that's fascinated me. While my conversation with Greg focuses on the music of the Hindi film industry, commonly referred to as Bollywood, it should be noted that there are several regional film industries in India, all of which contribute to India's popular music culture. Thus, music plays a vital role in the commercial success of films across the Indian subcontinent. Through 1980-ish, there are probably, I think, less than 10 commercial Hindi films made that don't have songs, and most of them flopped. You couldn't sell the film. The film producers could not sell the film to their distributors if it didn't have songs. So they were making the songs, and the songs were maybe 10% of a film budget. They were making the songs not for direct revenue, but because that would, that would make this, the film saleable and improve, hopefully, their box office returns, which is the only real profit in business. Given that the popular music industry and the film industry is so tightly integrated, could you describe the production process of film music? Well, Hindi film songs got created, were created by 
uh, people who were called music directors. They were composers primarily, but they were also effectively uh, a kind of a producer. Um, they worked as independent contractors on a film-by-film basis. They were employed by the film producer who picked the ones that he preferred or the ones that he worked with on a regular basis to compose songs for a particular film. And they would sit together and decide, okay, this is gonna, here's the situation, there's going to be the scenes, here's going to be the songs, and so forth and so on. The film producer would hire the lyricist, the film producer would hire the singers. And in effect, the film producer would hire the musicians as well. So that goes along with, I think, one of the, the central issues in your article that you talk about, which is ownership of, of music and who owns the music. As I said, in effect, film producers were the people producing India's popular music, A. And because of the way the Indian Copyright Act was written, they were also the owners, the first owners in, in legal terms, of all the Hindi film songs that were produced because everybody who was working, producing those songs was working on contract. And the law said, if you're working on contract, then the first owner of the song is the employer, who were the film producers. You situate this popular music and film music industry within India's economic, as you refer to it, so a post-independence isolationist economic system. How does the film music industry and, and thereby the popular music industry develop within the constraints of this isolated economic system? It was a gradual process in which the Indian government, it's, it's called, technically it's called economic nationalism. And the government rejected, in effect, the development models that the West was promoting globally in the 1950s and 60s. Isolated its economy quite drastically from the rest of the world economy. And the government had a policy which pushed as hard as possible the idea that everything we need, we have to make ourselves. Situation, to some extent, protected um, the culture industry, the film industry, from competition with, outs- with the outside world because it was very hard to get music from the outside. Effectively, the film industry and the film music industry, there was no competition. Nobody, there was no global alternative that was readily accessible to most Indians. In fact, most Indians didn't even have access to the discs. They had to effectively consume music on the radio or by going to the movies. So when does this begin to change? It began to change in 1970, you can say, when Philip Siemens, which is a big German-Dutch conglomerate, established an Indian subsidiary called Polydor. And about the same time, in the mid-70s, we begin to see audio cassettes. And of course, audio cassettes are the big game changer for music in many places in the world, including India. The difference was that cassettes were cheap, they were easy to produce, they were easy to copy, they were easy to pirate. And all of a sudden, Indians could afford, in effect, to buy music. So it changed the whole dynamic of how, this, of how the music, music consumption worked in India. And people began to buy music. The demand had always been there. It's just that nobody in India could actually meet the demand in any way that anybody could afford. The rise in the value of recorded sound in India goes up by hundreds and hundreds of percents over the course of the 1970s and 80s, and into the 90s for that matter. You talked about with the emergence of the cassette industry, uh, you have then this enormous growth within the 
uh, music industry as a standalone economy to some extent apart from, uh, from, the, uh, from the film industry. How did piracy, enabled by the cassette industry, have an impact on the economic value of popular music and, and the economy around this? Well, cassettes made piracy possible, in effect. You could do it at home with a two-in-one cassette, you know, cassette to cassette. You could do it in your basement with a three-to-one or a ten-to-one slave machine that you put in ten cassettes and copy from one, and eventually you get to other things. And people did that. It was easy to do. So what piracy did, it took advantage of the demand, but it took advantage of the demand in a way that uh, made it harder for the legitimate companies to function. And of course, some of them didn't function and, and everybody complained about it. And there's probably a point in the 80s where piracy, or let me say it this way, revenues from pirated product are probably 80 to 90% of the total revenues for music in India. And, for, and it doesn't last forever, but for, there's a period in which that's the case. Um, simply because the government wasn't really able to manage to control it and everybody was doing it. You talk about the emergence of version songs and remixes. Describe these musical practices and the artistic and legal issues related to them. Well, version songs are basically straight re-recordings of the original film song. Different singer usually, but the, the arrangements are, I mean, I watch guys do it. They basically just trans, transcribe the arrangements on the original recording, pass the parts out to the players, and away we go. And we make a new recording. So version songs, straight one-to-one replication. Remixes were, and you find this in other parts of the world, they're the song re-recorded, usually, but with a different arrangement that features sort of Western dance beats. And this was a very early version of club music in India. Uh, remixes were what everybody played in the, in the clubs in the 1990s um, for young people to dance to because dancing itself was a new thing. And the beats made them Western, but the melodies were familiar. So they were a quite successful early version of sort of club music, dance music, as you can say. Um, two very different phenomena, but both of which involved the re-recording of old film songs. Version songs begin in the 19, middle of the 1980s, and there's a whole sort of cadre of young playback singers who were specialists at primarily dubbing for the big four, for Latabai and Ashabai and Rafi and uh, Kishorda. These new singers were specialists in sounding like. So Anuradha Podwal was very com- frequently used to dub for Lata Mangeshkar when Lata biz- was too busy. And so gradually what happened is those dubbing singers became they retained the dub version rather than actually going back and re-recording. They said, well, this is good enough. Let's use the dub. So they became specialists, in a sense, at sounding like these very famous playback singers from the earlier period. As these older people got older, they died, they, they stopped recording, and so forth and so on. So you mentioned earlier the, the big four. Explain a little bit about playback singers, the history and uh, cultural significance of playback singers, and, and also maybe unpack the, the big four a little bit. A song would be recorded, and they would play the song back while the actors mimed the singing. And that's, that's how the term playback works. Playback singers were effectively India's popular singers. In the 50s, we had four or five 
females and four or five male major playback singers. By the 1960s, those numbers begin to go down so that in the 60s and 70s, really, there are two male singers. There's Mohammed Rafi and Kishore Kumar. And there are two female singers, Lata Mangeshkar and Asha Bonsley. And while there were some others, the percentage of songs recorded by those four is staggering. It's a staggeringly small and dominant oligarchy. So when I talk about the big four, and it's, it's, a, it's a somewhat of a generalization, but it's fair, um, those four singers were the voices of, between the four of them, I'm sure, I'm sure we're in the 80, 80 percentile range of everything is one of those four voices. So the song, when it was recorded, is the song, it's a song of Lata Mangeshkar. It's, it's not as if, well, I don't like Lata's recording, I'll go buy somebody else's recording of the song. There was no other recording. We didn't, never heard it in any other voice. Everybody who experienced a film song experienced it initially until version songs appeared, mid-80s. They experienced it in only one voice. You never had a re-recording of a song by Lata Mangeshkar. You never had a re-recording of a song by Muhammad Rafi. Every time you heard that song, it was Rafi's song. So the original song and the original singer were the same thing in India. To a degree that's not true at all in the West, where songs were composed and often published as sheet music with no voices attached. And then whoever wanted to could go out and record it. In India, because the original publication and effect of the song was through the film version, everybody had the same experience of the song. And version songs were especially confusing for India because they did involve different singers, even though the singers sounded like the originals or did their best in many cases to sound like the originals. Because of how people experienced film songs and how the Copyright Act approach the whole business of what's called statutory licensing. Statutory licensing is a thing that you find in a lot of Western copyright acts. It basically says, if a song has been recorded, you can make, somebody else can go out and make a recording of the song as long as they let the author know, they let the owners know they're doing it, and they pay them the royalties as prescribed. It's a very useful kind of a intellectual property law around things like, for example, pharmaceuticals. Make, it makes possible the generic version of the drug, for example. But in music, statutory licensing means, okay, we can, make a re- we can record the song, find a band, find a singer, record the song, as long as the song has been recorded already, legally, and as long as we notify and pay the owners. As a result, when version songs appeared, there was a big debate about, is this not only legal, but is it culturally appropriate? One journalist sort of says, there are version songs of Bach. There are version recordings of Dikshitar. Mutsumi Dikshitar is a famous South Indian composer, but he composed and he wrote down notes. Classical guy. So sure, there are version recordings of Bach. Every recording of Bach is a version recording. We haven't got Bach in the original voice, so to speak. There's no recordings of Bach playing the organ. And so it makes perfect sense. And, and it sort of, it's built into the system. It's built into our expectations culturally and legally and so forth and so on. Those expe- it was not built into Indian systems or expectations. So version songs created quite a controversy 
And because until 1970, there was really only one music company in India, the Gramophone Company of India, that meant that every song, in effect, recorded between 19, I don't know, pick a date, 47, and 1970, was released by the Gramophone Company, owned by the Gramophone Company. They owned everything. And when people went back and said, well, look, we can't get the originals because they didn't keep them in stock. We want a recording of this song. We can't get a recording of this song. Gramophone Company won't give us the master, if they've got it, which they probably didn't. We'll re-record it. And that's what they did. It was only a thing that really existed for about 10 years in the period where everybody knew all the old film songs and there were no available recordings of the old film songs because Gramophone Company wasn't releasing them. So in that time period, version songs were enormously important and frankly, things that you know, made it possible for people to own songs finally. Cassettes come along and cassettes make it possible to produce version songs cheaply enough for people to buy and then people kind of finally own the songs. So they started re-recording the songs and it was legal according to the Indian Copyright Act. But it felt wrong culturally in India. What makes it feel so wrong? Because it's a different voice. It's not Lata. At what point in Indian film history do audiences come to have a, this relationship with the singers, with the playback singers? It starts sometime in the 40s. And it's in the 40s that really the, the practice becomes established permanently. I mean, there were always playback singers. It's just that it wasn't, it took a while to get to the point that it was standard practice. And over the 1940s, what we see is a decline in the number of actors who are singing and an increase in the number of music specialists, playback singers, who are doing the singing. Muhammad Rafi and uh, Lata Mangeshkar are both you know, quite active by the late 1940s. They become gradually the dominant voices. And as I've said, we never hear the songs any other way. When you're talking about version recordings, you cite this judicial decision in, in the Delhi High Court. I'm just going to read in part what it says. The voice is the soul and essence of a vocal rendering in a sound recording. Invariably, the vocal performance is remembered not only by the melody, but also by the identity of the singer. So one thing that's interesting about this is this ruling or this decision seems to place the playback singer in a very powerful role in terms of authorship and ownership. But this isn't necessarily reflected in the copyright law, right? Well, yo, no, absolutely not. It's not at all. What it does is it places the singer at the core of a song's identity. And what Mukul Mudgul, who was the justice who wrote that decision, was arguing was that by changing the voice, you are making a significant change in the song. For many, you know, Westerners, how do we get to that? I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't, almost doesn't make sense because we're so used to the idea that more than one person might record a song. But in India, that idea didn't exist. And Mukul Mudgal says, this is the identity of the song. This, the identity of the song is inseparable from the identity of the singer. You know, as I read that, that decision, it reminded me of a recent high-profile high case in the West, and that's Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines. I think it was the number two song in, in 2013. And he was sued uh, by Marvin Gaye's estate for copyright infringement. And one of the criticisms of that decision was that the jury was ordered to base their decision on the sheet music. So even though sheet music doesn't typically factor into the songwriting process of popular music today, that was the base upon which the 
jury was ordered to uh, make the decision. So it seems that this conflation of song and voice in India maybe has some relevance to sort of thinking about these debate, debates of the essence of a song in a West as being shaped by recent decisions like this. In those decisions, the fight, in a sense, is about originality. Is it a copy? Is this being pre- presented as a new song? But what we're arguing is it's not original because it is a clear copy of another musical composition. But it's being presented as a new original song. Version songs were not being presented as original. They were pre- presented as as close to the original as we can possibly get, as close a copy as we can make. So toward the end of your article, you brought up Javed Akhtar, a member of India's parliament, uh, who helped push for greater rights for authors and composers. What regulatory changes have been made and what effect have those changes had for creators within the popular music industry as a whole? Well, this is what happened was the Copyright Office developed an amendment which basically said, irregardless of any other kind of issue, composers, authors own 50% of the rights to their songs and these rights cannot be reassigned. What that means is no deal can be made in which the author does not receive 50% of the royalties for the song. And it's thrown everybody into mass confusion because it's made it much more expensive for record companies to produce music because now 50% of their profits are gone. So it's, it's, it's gotten, it made everybody very excited and people are still trying to work out various ways around it. I mean, some companies are simply saying, if you want to record with us, you'll sign this waiver saying that these laws don't apply to you and that's the end of the story. So it, it's, we're still not clear exactly what's happened. It's the 2012 amendment to the Copyright Act and that's its important clause for composers and authors. But while it seems to benefit them, it also makes it more expensive for record companies to record their work. Part, part of your article deals with the emergence or the entrance of India into the global music economy. Toward the end of the 20th century, the U.S. in particular increased its efforts in protecting its intellectual property rights abroad, uh, particularly with large-scale non-Western economies like India, China, Brazil, and others. What effect did this political and economic pressure from Western nations, such as the U.S., have on the development of the music industry, the film industry, and shifting intellectual property issues within India? Well, what happens is when the regulations that, that isolated India begin to be dismantled, so to speak, when that begins to happen in the middle of the 1980s, really, India gradually becomes part of the global music economy. It takes a number, it takes a good 10, 20 years, I would say, before it really happened. But between, say, the later 80s and the beginnings of the 2000s, someplace in there, India is part of the, the bigger global picture. As that happens, there's more pressure on India to deal with piracy music piracy, intellectual property rights, generally speaking. Formally, India was part of that. They were part of the World Intellectual Property Organization. Um, They had signed the treaties around all these things. They just weren't enforcing the rules. They just weren't enforcing the laws. Piracy is still very much a part of Indian uh, street life. It's it's moved from cassettes, obviously, to uh, the MP3. So... Piracy is still very much part of the scene, but it's, in a sense, less. 
because the market is frankly worth less these days. The fact of the matter is, the music industry has come, kind of come full circle. We're back, in, at least in India, to the place we were in the 1910s and 20s, where you made a recording because it was going to boost your, your concert attendance. It was going to be publicity for you. And that's kind of how it's working now. The money is being made in live performance. If you want to make money as a musician in India, you do live shows. You don't record songs. Songs are publicity. The recordings, anyway. So it's, we're in a very different world as far as the, the way the industry is structured goes. The industrial logic, uh, the unit of sale is very unclear for a lot of people. Greg Booth is an associate professor of ethnomusicology at the University of Auckland, New Zealand. He has studied Indian music and culture for more than 30 years and is the author of two books and numerous articles on the music and film industry of South Asia. His article, Copyright Law and Popular Music in India, can be found in the spring-summer 2015 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Grace Coleman, George Daniel, Alyssa Bobinet, and Brianna Glenn, consulting editor Harry Berger, and our advisory board members Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia-Corona. Additional support has been provided by SCM President Beverly Diamond and First Vice President Margaret Sakissian, and SCM Executive Director Stephen Stimfley. Special thanks to Penn Masala for the music in this episode. You can learn more about the world's premier Hindi a cappella group at penmasala.com. Thanks again to Greg Booth for speaking with us about his research. This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. Kare kare, machale, kare kare, machale, kare kare, nena. Where's the party tonight? On the dance floor, where's the party? Mocha, mocha, everybody now, mocha, mocha. Mocha, 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 mocha,